Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. In case you haven't noticed, we turned on the advertising spigot to help make ends meet. If you want to avoid ads and gain access to our Discord channel, monthly salons, and other good stuff, just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is where we celebrate the collective human capacity to make meaning together, resist the forces of industrialization, and see symbols, allegory, metaphor, and magic in what we're told is just material stuff. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today... Symbolist, curator, creator, and editor of an entirely new version of the 1970s penthouse film's mega fiasco, Caligula, Tom Negavan. To me, the best decisions I've ever made in my life are when I tried to forget language. What am I just looking at? I don't think it's intuition. I think it's just a processing that's faster than language. Tom and I will be talking about artistic and spiritual responses to the deadening effects of industrialism. It's time to intervene on behalf of people and all living things. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. As I often do between writing books, I've been reading various reviews of my work for clues on what to write next. And this time, I noticed that more than once, a reviewer has remarked that while my analysis and deconstruction of the digital economy and its many problems is sound, the solutions I offer are too weak or too small or too local to make a difference at the scale required. The underlying assumption here is that Problems occurring on a national or global scale require solutions of equal size. In all fairness to myself, I do often suggest big system-wide changes like reversing the tax code to penalize capital gains rather than wages or shifting education priorities from job skills to critical thinking. I mean, these are big changes. But in fairness to the critics, the vast majority of what I call for are highly local solutions, actionable not by national governments or global coalitions, but individual readers or listeners. 
I suggest people support community-supported agriculture or consume less. And my current favorite, lend and borrow stuff instead of buying everything. And I do that for a few reasons. First off, it's an individual person reading my book. Individuals are digesting all of the systemic problems I'm describing and thinking to themselves, what in the world can I do about all that? I need to present them with something they can do for real that could make a difference and then demonstrate how that one small action can create a ripple effect on everything else. In other words, the upside to living in a world with dozens of interconnected crises is that almost anything can serve as a high leverage point to system-wide change. What I see as less effective, even uh, uh, paralyzing, is to pull back and see all of our problems as what system thinkers might might call a meta-crisis. Climate change is caused by carbon emissions, which are caused by energy over-expenditure, which is caused by exponential growth, which is required by global corporate capitalism, which is enforced by corrupt government, which is kept in power by business interests, which are amplified by technology and institutionalized by law. It's this nightmare of epic proportions and abstract monster of global forces that can only be challenged if we create an equal and opposite monster of our own. Or so the thinking goes in this bad trip of an approach to problem solving. Like the mythical rabbi of 16th century Europe who conjured an anthropomorphic clay being or golem to defend the Jews of Prague from an anti-Semitic attack and, and from pogroms, we're supposed to create a single abstract system, campaign, or global movement capable of confronting and neutralizing the abstract three-headed monster of capitalism, technology, and domination. And any solution that doesn't solve for, well, for, for everything is somehow insufficient. And to me, that feels like a mistake. Human beings don't actually operate at the scale of nations or planets. We're little. As earthlings, we are indigenous to the real world of people and soil and air and stuff. Why fight corporations in their own abstract realm of finance? That's their turf, which, which they invented and where they have the advantage. The more we operate there, the more we reify its dominance over our affairs. Besides, what if the problem is scale itself? It took a long time for the monarchs of medieval Europe to convince us that their courts are where the action really is and to enforce the use of their centralized money systems in local markets. And more recently, it was national and global brands that had to spend millions through media to convince us that their products were somehow superior to the ones made by local craftspeople. It worked so well that many of us proudly wear their brands on our clothes, unaware that the brand itself, it finds its origins in the marks burned into the hides of cattle to prove their ownership. Think about that the next time you don a Nike swoosh. 
I'm all for creating and supporting labor unions, climate organizations, political campaigns, and legal action groups to fight our collective battles against the abstract entities that threaten our well-being. But I also believe we can make their jobs easier by doing everything we can to support each other on an immediate and local level. Yes, we want FEMA to show up after a disaster, but we also want as many individuals as possible to have a few days' supply of food and water themselves. Likewise, the less dependent we are on the scaled infrastructure for sustenance, the less power the scaled monsters have over our lives. That's why I push so hard for people to opt for local solutions like producing some of our own energy or growing food or my much-ridiculed borrowing a drill. When we have a single home project, too many of us still go to the Home Depot and buy a minimum viable product drill instead of having the guts to knock on the neighbor's door and ask to borrow theirs. That's because we know it will set in motion a chain of events with which we're unfamiliar and even uncomfortable. What if the neighbor wants something in return? Will I have to invite them to our next barbecue? What if they, what if they want to be friends? Of course, borrowing a drill instead of borrowing one means less rare earth metals mined from the ground, less enslaved labor, less carbon emissions, transportation costs, and ultimately less toxic landfill when it inevitably breaks. But if a bunch of us start sharing tools with our neighbors instead of buying everything for ourselves, eventually we'll be confronted with new questions like, what happens when the tool companies start laying off workers? Do we let them do things we actually need, like childcare and teaching? Do we even need everyone working 40-hour weeks? Do we just manufacture stuff because people need it, or because we need a way to justify letting people have what's actually in abundance? Tiny changes in behavior have system-wide repercussions, and they enact them in ways that make our lives better in the moment on the ground, rather than further burdening and emboldening the scaled but highly brittle entities we need to dismantle, or at least to deflate. I know this sounds like degrowth, the much maligned but ultimately sensible approach to mitigating our disastrous addiction to exponential economic expansion. To the investment class, as well as any of the people and institutions who are stuck on the false notion that GDP has to grow infinitely for an economy to be sustainable, degrowth is a golem coming to destroy their financial house of cards. It's an object for them to identify and attack. But people everywhere all at once doing things like sharing stuff with each other? That's a lot harder to arrest. It's also easier for us to adapt to because it's incremental and bottom-up, increasing our resilience along the way. So yes, most of the solutions I suggest are small because that's how we restore power to people rather than simply replacing one scaled monster with another. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. 
Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. Was that too weird? I'm not used to these interdimensional leaps. Feet on the ground, though. Breathe in. Breathe out. I am here. What a weird moment. It's times like these that I'm glad I know people like Tom Negavan. Well, I don't really know people like him. I don't think there are any. But I have known Tom for maybe 25 years. We were introduced by the great occult scholar and archivist of the weird, Richard Metzger. And I was immediately drawn to Tom's work. He restored and published a gorgeous edition of Alphonse Mucha's symbolist masterpiece, Le Pater, which we'll talk about. And he runs a museum gallery publisher of art Nouveau and symbolist art called the Century Guild, and he just finished creating the new darling of the Cannes Film Festival, an entirely new version of the disastrous film project Caligula, all from never-before-seen footage. What inspires me most about Tom is his message about how we, as conscious humans, can respond to an era of industrialism. It's a pleasure to bring you this conversation with my friend, Tom Negavan. Somehow, magically and beautifully, the Penthouse Films people found you as a trustworthy uh, preserver of uh, and, and interpreter of stuff? So I, I have a... F- friend who is just a a close family friend that wound up working for the office in New Orleans that handles licensing for Penthouse. They own the nightclubs and and things like that. And it's a separate company from the IP of what Penthouse is in terms of the magazines and, you know, the old storage facilities and whatnot. And so what happened is a new owner came in and in the course of kind of examining what this asset asset base was, they had what turned out to be an entire warehouse filled with boxes of old film materials. And they didn't know what to do with it. Hmm. And so this friend of mine basically said, I, I know a guy. And I think I was kind of more known. I was known as someone who was really artistic, but also uh, a problem solver, like meaning good with systems, like Mm. looking at the mess and being like, okay, where's the pattern here to kind of pull together? And so basically the question was, hey, we've got this thing. It's really weird. Would you look at it and tell us if it's good? Like, is this something that 
we're not art people is this. And so the, the thing I equate it to always is like the ending of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where you go in and you like open a crate and, oh, here's the Ark of the Covenant. Right. <laughs> and you open something else. It's like, oh, here's the Spear of Destiny. And then you're looking at the door like, or it's like, is this real? Yeah. And so what happened was what they had was what turned out to be, and you could see the hints of this, the breadcrumbs, but it turned out to be the depth and breadth of everything that had been created in 1976 for the movie Caligula. Mm. And what had happened in the way the, the course of that story ran out in the 1970s is that the movie was filmed and ultimately Bob Guccione, the owner of Penthouse, fired everyone and decided to edit the film with no regard to the script and to intercut a bunch of pornography that he had filmed himself alone on the sets after the cast had left. <laughs> and so the movie that came out, Malcolm McDowell has always called it a complete betrayal because if you read the script and you look at the movie, it's like there's they're not the same film at all. It's a very... The first, the original movie is a train wreck. There's a reason that Variety called it a moral holocaust and Roger Ebert called it worthless trash. But so the kind of legend was that Malcolm McDowell had said for 40 years, I know we made a good movie, but what was released was a betrayal. Right. So they, but because they had like John Gilgood and, and Helen Mirren, Helen Mirren, and Peter, Peter O'Toole. O'Toole, and Malcolm McDowell. I mean, these are sort of the leading super actors. Of the period, who sure there's there's always a possibility that they can make the Hobbit six or something, right. you know, or cats or whatever, you know, they're all in cats, I yeah. think. So it can happen. But McDowell is saying, no, we actually did something real here. Right. So when I was looking then, and I'm like, wait a minute, these are all the negatives. It was almost like the myth that he had been telling. Now there's like you found the treasure map, mm. and so what fans of cinema had thought for 40 years was that these materials had been destroyed decades ago. And all of a sudden it's like, no, 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 wait, like this is the evidence. Like this is, these boxes are filled with theoretically what would be the materials that had been captured on set in 1976. And so my answer to them was, I don't know what you have here, but from a cinema point of view, it's historically significant because it is one of the most debated things in kind of film nerd back of the videos, right. back of the VHS store, you know. Was oh, there yeah, something gonna, here? Right. right. It's one was of those there. movies like uh, David Lynch's Dune or something that is there some masterpiece under this thing? I mean, I remember when Caligula came out. It was like more than X. It was worse than X yeah. because it was, you know, both all this sex stuff. I mean, and they showed, I remember, I, I must have been 18, 19, whenever. It was 1979. I got in somehow. I was old enough, uh, 17 plus, I suppose. But <laughs> it was just gross. You know, there was actual hardcore pornography in it and like really horrible violence. I tried to give it the, uh, uh, even as a young person, the sort of, oh, well, it's sort of this over-the-top something. But it was really hard to make sense of even what was going on. I got a Caligula. is this really bad emperor dude who then just did awful stuff and eventually had his head chopped off by his big machine thing. There's, there's a lot <laughs> of the emperor's new clothes around Caligula. When people say... As a person, you mean? 
No, no, no. I mean, I mean the the film. When people right. tell me they love Caligula, if they say I love it because it's a train wreck, that I totally get. Right. But when people try to say no, 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 it's really a good movie. It's kind of like a monkey painting with shit. Like, right? There was no thought that went into what this movie, as it was released in 1980, was. It was literally just trying to make it as much of a spectacle. Like, there's no sense to when this blowjob or that decapitation happens. It's it's a very it's almost like a Dadaist film, right? Because the real thing wasn't it written by a, a Gore Vidal. Gore Vidal wrote Gore Vidal. the screenplay, yeah, for this thing. Yes, and I guess they didn't follow it when they edited what ended up. No, there right. there are scenes in the 1980 release where Malcolm McDowell's costume changes <laughs> because they used footage from different scenes that happened to take place on the same location or like in the same, you right. know, on the same set. That's how little they cared about. There's a part where he's supposed to go look behind a wall to see if there's a spy there and all of a sudden magically there's two lesbians having sex. And then <laughs> it's just like, it's, it, there's no, right. It doesn't even make sense in the universe. Right. So we have to assume that, that the real director of this thing, who was a uh, Tinto, Tinto brass, brass, right. Yeah. That he, he meant to do an interesting movie probably. Yes. To do something cool. And he, was artsy, right? And he had these big things he made that I remember imprinting me. I haven't seen any of it in a zillion years, but there was like a giant wall that they used to kill people that had like weird <laughs> head choppy things. And I mean, there was huge images, almost Terry Gilliam level images. Well, that's a funny story. So Gore Vidal wrote the script and when you listen to the initial interviews where Bob Guccione is saying, this is going to do for cinema what Citizen Kane did in its day. Mm. And Gore Vidal and Bob Guccione keep talking about historical accuracy, that that's what they're focusing on. Mm. Well, Danilo Donati is a set designer that had won Academy Awards. We probably best know him as the set designer for Flash Gordon. He very famously never read the scripts. So what would happen, and this is something that was heavily documented on Flash Gordon, is that they would come in and it's <laughs> like, where's this set? And he's like, well, I gave you this. So they were rewriting the script on the fly. Well, that's what happened with Caligula. There's no part in Gore Vidal's script where there's a three-story decapitation machine. But <laughs> Danilo decided that's what he wanted to build. So a lot of the, there's a part where, Peter O'Toole and Malcolm McDowell as Tiberius and Caligula are walking through Tiberius's harem of monsters and there's conjoined twins and satyrs and hermaphrodites and there's like a, a three and a half foot tall person with three eyes and all this weird stuff. There's elevators in this scene, like not at all, like the way Gore Vidal wrote it, they're meandering through a garden. But again, they show up and there's no garden built. He's like, I built you a three-story elevator with, it's like Donkey Kong. So that's, that's part of it. Right. So you, for people who don't know, you then took this room of footage and a script from somewhere that you had and tried to make, you tried to assemble something close to the script of the movie using 
all these materials that were there. Yeah, we had over 90 hours of raw footage. And is that a lot from, for a That's feature a film? That's a I lot. I mean, don't you think Sound of Music had 90 hours of footage? Probably around? not. Really? Yeah, oh. no, because film was expensive. Right, and that would be a 90 to 1 shooting ratio, which you wouldn't even do in Hollywood. Uh, right, 90 30, to 30 to 1. Right. You know, around 30. It's, yeah, it's ex- exorbitant. Right. And very expensive. Very expensive. Right. But the key that I found to, to unlock it was when I stopped looking at what everyone was saying it was. And I looked at it like if Jodorowsky was making a graphic novel like with Milo Manara. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like a 1970s comic book version. Well, now all right. of a sudden, the fact that every shot you look at, there's giant like dicks everywhere and there's like <laughs> everybody's naked and the soldiers that are attacking, none of them are wearing pants and there's a three-story decapitation machine. And well, when you start to look at it through that lens of like heavy metal magazine and things like that, right. well, now it makes sense. Right. This weird heavy metal Barbarella-esque nightmare version of ancient Rome. Exactly. Go. Exactly. Right. <laughs> In that, through that lens, then it makes sense. Because if you listen to Gore Vidal and his butthole is clenched so tight and he's talking about you know emperors and it's all very serious and I'm like you're aware that there there's a three-story elevator here like it, you know that doesn't make right. sense then you hear bob guccione talking about citizen kane and you're like no 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 like there's dick jokes in it you know i'm like so it's right. not that but then you hear tinto brass and he's talking about all of this avant-garde filmmaking and i'm looking at it like but your guy didn't focus the camera most of the time like they're bumping the tripod like he was mm. way out of his element as well And so what I had to do was I I tried to look at it like an arbitrator of everybody's opinion is valid, but it's almost like the three men touching the elephant. Right. The idea that it, you know, there's a great Neil Gaiman quote, a story need not have happened to be true. So it's like, okay, it can be the true story of Caligula and still have dick jokes and a decapitation machine because if you get the symbolism right and it can still be the spectacle that bob guccione wants because he didn't want it to be a terrible joke of a movie he wanted it to be taken seriously it's like okay well if you look at something like mobius or yodorowsky or minara and you look at it and you take that seriously and you say yeah this is a valid way of looking at art tinto and gore hated each other and tinto would make jokes that said if Gore gets too uppity, I'll just leak his script. And mm. the thing is, it wasn't a great script. It was written more like a stage play. It was written like chapters of a book. It didn't flow in the same linear right. way. And the thing that Malcolm McDowell said was, this character's very two-dimensional. He's just a madman. Like, where's the story arc? And so Malcolm went in and started rewriting the script. He had a writer, Ted Whitehead, fly out to London they started huh. redoing the script to make it more about this guy who was in love with his sister. And no, that and- was all in there, but to make it less, we're from day one out of the gate. He was a madman. Right. And so the thing that they introduced that we were able to find in the footage is for the first third of the movie, you have this young man whose parents and brothers and sisters were all murdered by his grandfather 
And he's genuinely frightened. So when he's summoned to the emperor's palace, we're fearful for him. Whereas in the 1980 release, the way the movie opens is he's dreaming that he's having sex with his sister. Then he wakes up and he says, I've had the most terrible nightmare. And you pan back and he's in bed with his sister. So (laughs) from literally the opening shot, it's like, wait, is this a joke? Is this... Right. Is it faulty towers? And then in the middle third of what we were able to create, he gets power. He becomes the emperor. And he starts to, and this is a Gore Vidal idea, that if you give an undisciplined child power, they'll break things. And if it's a child, it's their toys. They start to gain their strength and invariably some toy gets broken. Well, what happens if you do that with a man that you give all the power in the world? then the, the toys are people and people get broken. Right. And it's like at that point, it's like Billy Mummy in that Twilight Zone episode. Exactly. Like, that's, oh, that's real good. That's real good. You know, because otherwise, yeah. it's to the cornfield, to the cornfield. <laughs> so, that's, so that's now, so as opposed to the old 1980 version where he was just wailing and flailing for three hours, now in the second hour, you've got that cornfield thing where you cross him, you get hurt. But then, because the only person who was his rock in this universe was his sister, because his parents, his brothers and sisters all killed, the only voice of reason in his life was his sister, which kind of recontextualizes the fact that they were lovers a little bit. Like that was his only foundation in the world. Right. So when she dies... Then he goes completely off the rails. And so that's the last third. And so we built that structure in that didn't exist in the other movie. And then the thing that I think a viewer like you is really going to appreciate is that because people like Gore Vidal knew the hero's journey, sense of Mm. storytelling and all of that, the thing that exists in the new edit that didn't ever exist before is Caligula understands what's happening at the end of the movie. Hmm. And there's a part where he and his wife, who's played by Helen Mirren, are doing this play, this Egyptian play of Isis and Osiris. Hmm. And the idea of being reborn into eternity. And there's all of these kind of fourth wall things that break where we know that he understands, and there's all the symbolism throughout, but he knows he's going to be killed and he knows that that's part of his destiny as part of his experience of power. It's closer to Yodorowsky or everything everywhere all at once than it is, you know, I don't know, like a, the, the baddie right. porn movie that it was. right. But it's interesting, though. So I always associated, not artistically, but temporally, Caligula with Apocalypse Now. You know, because these two movies came out basically the same time. Right. And by people saying, this is the movie that's going to end all movies. This is the the ultimate (laughs) movie of our time. You know, and it's going to embody the, the kind of the disillusionment, sexual excess, violence of what we've just been through as a nation. And boy, one was a fucking masterpiece. Well, I'll I'll add an asterisk to that. At the time, it was the most expensive 
independent movie ever made. So part of why people were talking about Caligula so much is that the mm. budget was almost twice that of Star Wars. And Peter O'Toole, right. Lawrence of Arabia, Malcolm McDowell, Clockwork Orange, like these were names right. that people were excited to see. The budget, it would, you know, it'd be like some $500 million oh, yeah. movie today. No, and this was, it was announced like a year in advance. It was already like a full page New York Times yeah. advertisement coming, you know, next year, the greatest film. You yeah. Know? But yeah, it's that excess. But then the movie, it seems like an ideal time to do a movie that's sort of like, what if kind of like Donald Trump were in succession on, yeah. <laughs> on a certain level? <laughs> you know, yeah. there's a, yeah. a brittle authoritarianism to everything right now. And I don't mean sure. to, say, to equate right and left or progressives and conservatives, but everybody's brittle. Everybody's unforgiving. There's, a, there's not a lot of slack from a, any yeah. side for yeah. anything that anyone that anyone does and that to me means that we're i feel like we're moving into kind of an atmosphere of authoritarianism an, an atmosphere of yeah. of no forgiveness of of being ratted out by someone for having said something or done something and you know wh whatever you've done whether you're going to be arrested because your neighbors reported that you had an abortion after six weeks or you know whether you get canceled for using a word that it turns out last month was put on the on yeah. the, the bad yeah. list that that wasn't until then. Anyway, between that and having just experienced and maybe getting to again experience uh, Trump, you know, who's kind of above the law or outside the law, and so baby-like, kind of seems a, a childlike, self-indulgent sort of a Caligulesque monster. Yeah, and I'm we have Mark Zuckerberg who is modeling himself after a Roman emperor. He wants to be um, Augustus. You know, it's his haircut, is everything. And I always say in my talks, while well, we should be thankful it's not Caligula, yeah. it's still <laughs> a, a Roman emperor he's he's modeling himself after, which is never a good never a good sign. There are no good Roman emperors, just by definition of the thing yeah. that they stepped into. So it's, it's an interesting moment. And I guess I'm wondering, were you feeling resonance to our current moment in history as you tried to piece together this monstrous story of a Roman dictator? I think that when I wasn't working, I was very aware of the correlations, you know, because obviously I'm, I'm completely immersed in the ideas, the research, everything surrounding Caligula. And then, yeah, you look in the paper and it's like, you know, or you're reading something new about Trump or something like that. And, but I, when I was doing the work, I was just focused on, you know, finding the symbolism and, and following the characters. So it like, so yeah. So when I was not working, the answer is yes. When I was right. working, the answer was no. Like I was trying to be devoted to 1976. Right. What I was looking at was I tried to really immerse myself in the idea like I have all you know I had Peter O'Toole's journals like I had all kinds of things that I was able to access Gore Vidal's journals where I was able to really build a calendar and live through that year of filming right and find ways to mend those relationships in a little bit of a patchwork way and right. that's why I use that elephant metaphor right it wasn't about history it was about 1976 like what is this movie? What were the right. performers doing? 
Right. You're trying to assemble and reconcile the artistic intentions of the main players in this thing. And and I'll again another asterisk there. Main players that were in complete, not just disagreement, but violent opposition. Like right. actively undercutting the other person's artistic vision in ways that were brutal. Well, haven't you ever been in a play? It's the, yeah. it's the way it always is. <laughs> well, Gore Vidal wanted everything very monochromatic because at the time that was what the academics thought Rome right. looked like. Well, Tinto came in and he wanted like Mussolini's Italy. So he wanted everything bright and overdone. And then you had Malcolm come in and he wanted a real serious character arc. And you had right. Bob Guccione that wanted a porn movie. Right. And then you end up with the th- in the in the final, you end up with Bob Guccione selecting the most overdramatic takes yeah. of Malcolm. So he's not it's like Malcolm at his worst. Yeah, when people say that Malcolm's great in this movie, that is another thing that confuses me. Because when I watch the old movie, it feels almost like a silent film or where someone's playing for the the yeah. bleachers. Everything is so histrionic. And the thing that happened in the raw footage is there are incredibly sensitive takes. That's what we went with. Yeah. So there's not a take in the movie. That's one thing that's interesting is that, so in our new edit, there's not one frame that's ever been seen before. <laughs> Everything is a different take, even establishing shots, everything. Everything's different, all different takes. Because my take on this personally is it doesn't look like Tinto was really directing people as much as kind of managing chaos. Mm. And so what you see is that the Italian actors are performing like they're in a comedy and the British actors are performing like they're just doing a stage play. And so I had to find the most relaxed takes of the italian actors and i'm generalizing because obviously there's a bunch of actors and and everybody was in a different space the actors that were in like you know some of the more violent scenes played it straight but it was a matter of finding a thread throughout where it looked like they were all performing in the same movie right but malcolm's performances were i think it's the best movie he ever did i think it's Mm. way better than a clockwork orange from a performance point of view because he runs such a wide arc. Has he seen this thing? Uh, he has seen it. And what did he say? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't, he didn't email you right away to ask you to come out to the, the grounds. The first thing that I did was I contacted Tinto Brass. And the very second person I contacted was Malcolm McDowell's manager. And I said, look, I have this project on my lap. I'm a tourist here. This is before I started forming any opinions on anything. I said, I am a tourist here. This is your art. You should dictate the course of this. Like this is before I understood how much everyone hated each other and all of this. And, And so it was such a traumatic thing for Tinto. My understanding is that that's why that got ignored. I didn't hear from them until like eight or nine months later. When, when I kept kind of pummeling and other people were trying to bridge that gap. And then with Malcolm, I didn't get a response. And I tried for, I don't know, maybe a year, year and a half to keep updating Malcolm's manager. I didn't get a response until after the press came out from Cannes saying that it was a good movie. His manager told me, 
because the manager then called me and said, look, basically, I don't think Malcolm's lying when he says he didn't know about this because I think she, he said, I did tell him the things you were sending me, but it was such a traumatic experience for him. His flat reaction to anything Caligula was stop talking. Like right. there's a bunch of money to show up at a screening, not interested. Like it's an embarrassment. I don't. Right. It's like the worst thing he ever did. And imagine the yeah. shittiest job you ever had 40 years ago, someone right. wanting to talk about it. So I think he was gracious in interviews because he's charming yeah. and he's a performer. But on a business side, he didn't want to hear anything to do with it. And then what happened is he started hearing from people that had seen the movie, this thing that you did, that you said you did, I just saw it. And so what happened then is that then he said, why well, I should see this movie. Mm. And so that's the last thing that happened. So he did right. get the link. I know he watched it. Um, <laughs> that was all within the last couple of weeks. And so, you know, Helen Mirren was very excited is what I was told. Oh, great. But she's also said, I'll never say a bad word about Caligula because number one, we all knew what we were getting into. And number two, it paid for my first house. Like it was a job. It was a good job. It was a crazy year. It was a good thing. It was the late seventies when everybody was doing everything. I mean, yeah. the, the sets of these movies had Coke and God knows what. I mean, it was a different historical moment. It was, and, and especially the set of Caligula, she said it was like going down into Dante's Inferno to show up at mm. work every day. <laughs> so I didn't expect to know as much as I do about Caligula. But when it when I realized, okay, Tinto's not going to get involved. Malcolm doesn't want to hear about this. I couldn't really find someone to guide me through this. I need to really understand what happened. And so in a really messed up way, through reading all the documents, through all of these things, I kind of became the world expert on this movie. But one of the people I met was the man who shot the pornographic footage with Bob Guccione. After the fact. Yeah, that guy. Yeah. After the fact yeah. was a very wonderful man named Giancarlo, who has, he used to be best friends with Bob Guccione. They knew each other when they were young. And they wound up having a falling out, as it sounded like Bob Guccione did with most people, that had nothing to do with Giancarlo, just Bob making yeah. a 90 degree turn in life. But Giancarlo had been on set as Bob's eyes and ears. And so not only was he able to tell me what I was looking at in terms of help, helping me interpret it, but he also had shot over 20 hours of 16 millimeter footage on the set. Mm. So the thing that I'm working on right now, now that Caligula's done is a documentary. The making of. <laughs> Literally, yeah. Because it's in your head. I mean, it's in your head already. And, and yeah. also because I needed to understand it. There's another woman named Leslie Jay who was the press agent. She was Jack Silverman's assistant, but she also was in charge of all the marketing and everything for Caligula. And she's not only brilliant, but things like, for example, so so we premiered this new cut it, as an official selection at, at Cannes last month. The original movie showed at Cannes, not in the festival, just kind of in a screening room yeah. in 1979. And that's public knowledge. What I didn't know until she told me this, you have never read this anywhere, was Bob Guccione didn't know that it was going to be there. One of the other producers 
went there with film to show it to people. And Jack Silverman from New York happened to be at the film festival and got wind that their movie was going to be screening. And I, I mentioned that the person who brought it there was Franco Rossellini, who's Roberto Rossellini's nephew. And he's the person that was really the inception of the entire film. But I mentioned that as just an example of how dysfunctional every step of this film was. Right. That you had producers not even communicating to each other that I'm bringing this to the Cannes Film Festival. Right. Yeah, imagine then imagine what was going on on the set, right? This person's shooting this and they think they're shooting that and God knows what. But uh, but the beauty is there was enough stuff to cobble something together. It's sort of the opposite of a Kubrick film, which is tightly controlled and everything yes. every shot has a total meaning, but in some ways that's beautiful. It becomes like the equal and opposite. This is how a film happens <laughs> where everybody's doing their own thing. <laughs> You know, when we talked about like, what's the thread of my work, I figured out from working on Caligula that it's symbolist art, that whether it's Mucha or it's Caligula, the fact that I was able to take this really terrible, tarnished porno film and make it into what's more like a Jodorowsky film, it really has right. this beautiful arc of what it means to be an archetype, what it means to be a symbol and how mm. it, it, so Caligula does now live as a film that is a dreamscape. And if you go in, that's kind of why I mentioned I was living in 76 and not during the time of Christ right. is because it's not a real movie. It is a dreamscape that is about what happens when you're given power without discipline. And when you say symbolist, it's interesting. What does it mean to be symbolist? I was talking with someone yesterday about sacred geometry. So part of the way this came up was we were talking about Baphomet. And I was like, Baphomet is like Slenderman. Baphomet, the, the goat-headed devil thing, like that did not exist before whatever it was, 1856. Oh, really? It's not some crazy ancient goat no. Uh, devil thing. No, Baphomet was a mispronunciation of the French word for Muhammad. So the Knight Templar, the Knights Templar that were stationed in the Middle East started adopting some practices that were closer to Islam in their own faith. But that's like 1100. Right, right, right. Yeah. But so that's where the word came from. And then what happened is then when you had the Freemasons starting up, they were trying to link kind of like the Salon Rosacroix in 1892 was linking themselves to the Rosicrucians. Well, the, the Freemasons right. in the 1800s were trying to link themselves to the Knights Templar. And so they started retrofitting the word Baphomet with these Kabbalistic origins and all these other things. Mm -hmm. But Levi did that drawing of Baphomet as an alchemical figure which has the moon and you know the, those the white crescent and the black crescent and then there's the male and female, and the idea that it is through balance it's just basically a symbol of alchemy, right? That Leo Taxil in the 1880s because of the Catholics kind of being anti Freemason pointed to Baphomet and says that looks like the devil. And so then everybody kind of made these connections. I'm super oversimplifying it too, but, but yeah. the point is that, yeah, so Baphomet, the idea that Baphomet is a satanic figure did not exist until the 
anti-Freemasonry movement in Paris in the late 19th century. But symbolist, what, what does it mean if you're even just teaching a college freshman? What is symbolist art? What happens if you don't have language? You know what I mean? Like, what's the absence of language? Like, all we're left with, and if you take, whether it's taking, you know, things like the golden mean of the spiral and finding it in nature or looking at, okay, what does one point mean? What do two things mean? You've got a line. What does that represent? What are three? What are four? Like, how does a different structure represent something that has a physical manifestation, but also what can that represent on an internal landscape? To me, that's like the true language. That's like the language. It's almost like when they say we're going to communicate with aliens, what are we going to communicate with? We'll use mathematics. And so the idea that there is a language that is based in symbol, that is based in the idea of, it's almost like Picasso's bull where you essentialize it to an idea or a thought, that that is the purest form of communication and really the foundation, not just for art, but for human interaction. And so whether it's taking a story like Caligula and finding the message of what does it mean to interact on a personal level with power? What does it mean to interact on a personal level with your role in this great and powerful play? You know, at different points in our life, we're all different archetypes. And maybe it's more obvious in something like an artist like Alphonse Mucha that calls himself a symbolist. But I think that it doesn't matter what kind of music or what kind of cinema or what kind of literature or even what kind of day job you have. Like there are rituals that we have as humans and ways that we interact with our world and with other people that are all ultimately can be traced back to the simple idea of symbols. But I think what you're saying is almost more, sometimes things are what they are, but, but sometimes things have a meaning. They're part of a meaning system. Well, I would say things are always what they are, but they're also always what they're not. You know, think about the experiences you and I have had with being a parent. So a child is, of course, its own entity, but it's also a symbol in the course of, for you and I as fathers, a man's development. And, you know, and I'm sure it's completely different for a mother and it can be both of those things. And I feel like our relationship to story and our relationship to art, I think really that's, I, you know, maybe another word you could use instead of symbol is just kind of what's what's pre-story like what's story without language well the beautiful the beautiful thing about story without language in our moment is it again it challenges the chat gpt yes. notion of story yes right that's great at language okay tell us this and it will tell it will create language but i mean right now it's basically an act of faith to say yes but there's story beneath that or outside that, or you're not really describing it. Or you can describe it, but you can't enact it. So when ChatGPT does it, it is an act it's of faith. It's just language. Right, because it's all it is is regurgitating something other people have said, whereas the literal human experience of... I mean, I think about how... 
you know, talk about a funny internet era thing. I think about how different I am every year of my life, much less decade. Mm. And what is that unfolding? And when I think about my relationship with art and the role that art has played in assisting that development, I think that that's where things like these symbols and archetypes and guideposts are really kind of inarguably what the common thread is. It's not like, oh, I've just always loved this kind of drum beat. It's like, no, but why? Like, why do I have that reaction? And why is it different? Like, I hated drum machines for the longest mm. time. I could never listen to like Depeche Mode or any of that. Well, I'm in an era now where now I'm really appreciating it. But I had this bee in my bonnet for decades where, no, 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 everything has to be a living player. You know, it's like, well, you know, did the music change? Of course not. You know, I did. And I have a different relationship with, I guess what I'm saying is on a surface level, you could just say, oh, your taste change. But in trying to look at, but why do they change? And I think it's because just my relationship with the story is what changes. Right. If you really experience it, life is a weird, scary, disorienting thing, right? And you kind of need, even if they're arbitrary or even if they're social constructions, you kind of need a map or markers of some yeah. kind to sort of navigate through this thing, even if you want to do a free open grazing, you know, <laughs> cage free chicken lifestyle, you're still you got to know there's the water, there's the seed there. the These ones are nice. Those ones. So and I would call it the common thread in your work, but I would just call it one of the common threads in art or in any art that's that that cares about symbols and meaning is how do we how do we navigate i mean the way you tell the caligula story is like oh how do i navigate a path when i'm going to be the most powerful human on the planet huh it's like how do you move through this world what what do you take as a sign what is an omen what is safe yeah yeah and it's increasingly hard i mean in a, in a technologized environment it's as if it feels to me, and I, I've never, never gotten there with tech, it feels to me that technological systems, that longitude and latitude lines, that most of these these grid patterns tend to, to obscure the kinds of symbols that I can resonate with. You know, it's, it's the waves of the ocean are what matter, not what latitude or longitude line the wave yeah. is at because it's moving. Yeah. It is pre-linguistic and, and pre-mathematical even. Yeah. It's a different place. And it's, it's interestingly enough, it's a way of navigating that I feel right now that the right is better at doing than the left, that the right is a little bit more gut centric and how does it feel? And it's a dangerous place to go. Cause if you go all there, as you know, from the end of the yeah. Weimar Republic, you go to the, the bad place, yeah. you know? Yeah. I definitely think that, you know, it's interesting cause I, I'm, I'm very fascinated by everything happening with AI right now. And I do see where all the cracks in our society are, or the ones that I believe are the cracks, I feel that they're becoming so very exposed, which is that, okay, we have the benefit of Amazon delivery, but we've moved to the point where you're not using it as a tool. You're using it perhaps as an isolation method. And I don't mean isolation like you're choosing isolation. I mean like that's the side effect of it. And so one of the funny things is that I, um, I'm just reminded of this, that there's uh, – there was a house next door to where I lived 
when I was really first kind of, when I, I had a successful art gallery and I was like, why am I doing this? And this is when I started to make my shift more into educational and more into being, returning to my creativity and things like that. And there were all these gangbangers that would hang out on the corner. And there was one of them had his son with him all the time. And I would always hmm. think like, what is that kid's life going to be? Like, this is what he sees. This is what he's being taught. And I was thinking like, you know, what is it that I, what am I doing for society? And the thing that I thought was, it's hard for me to imagine someone that has a really strong relationship with some form of artistic expression that doesn't then also have an increased sensitivity to other people. And so I started just giving this kid comic books and things like that every time I would see mm -hmm. him, just thinking, if nothing else, I got to put some art in this kid's ecosystem. And that's when I really started shifting away from commerce and into trying to make some of this art history exciting and interesting and available and, you know, through writing the history books and things like that. And, and so I just feel like what's happened is like, we're like the kids that got the power without the discipline that this technology is escalating. And I'm not trying to sound like someone in the Art Nouveau movement saying, oh no, we're all doomed. It's more just like, we're using the tool without understanding why it's a value. And then in the process, losing part of you know, what the real benefit should be to society. Like, look at you and I are not in the same city. I haven't seen you in decades. Right. But I'm looking at your face now. Like, that's a great thing about technology. We do have all these things. But then there's the other side where guys just maybe have way too much access to porn and stop going out to meet women. Like, I don't know, you know, mm -hmm. like I'm not a sociologist, but I find all of it fascinating. And I think that that's a really wonderful thing. I loved about the team human book is that idea of like, you know, what team are you playing for? What's the point? Why are we doing any of this? You know, right. It's gotta be about people. I know. Or, or, or why do it? Yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's why I always go back to, you know, are you using the technology or is the technology using you? Yeah. You know, and if the tech's using you, chances are it's some form of capitalism using technology to yes. use you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think about it. There's a, my son doesn't, he's obsessed with video games, but he doesn't, he's nine and he doesn't use any of like the the chatting or something. And I had spoken with another parent and they're like, oh, you know, how do you get him to not use, she mentioned some chat app or something that the yeah. kids or the other kids were using. And I was like, well, he, I don't know about it. He doesn't know about it. But I just thought about the fact, like, I'm glad that at nine years old, he's not already using these chat apps as a, uh, you know, like I, I was watching a video. I think it was Tristan Harris was talking about the thing where at the top of the inbox, there's your AI friend mm -hmm. that's always there for you. And it's like, what a weird, do you know about this or not? It's a, no. they're basically it's just, there's, there is someone that you can always chat with. And so the idea is the thing he was expressing concern over is well, your friends have to be offline some of the time. So the relationship that you then continue to build is with this thing that isn't even real in the first place. But just as a, as a, a completely random separate thing, but we couldn't have restored Caligula without AI because the footage specifically with Sir John Gielgud, 
there was a motor right next to his head that was clanging the entire time. But the technology that they used for the Get Back documentary, where the computer was so sophisticated that it could separate the tone of the human voice from the things around it. Right. That it wasn't a matter of ducking something out the way we might have in the studio, you know, where you go in and, and do it old school. Like it literally could analyze these frequencies and that audio is some of the best sounding audio in the movie now. And it, there's, the technology to utilize it didn't exist five years ago. So I'm just kind of, I'm definitely living in a moment where it's like I'm seeing the gift, but also seeing, you know, the basilisk a little bit. Again, that's why I, I look at the symbolist movement, Art Nouveau or whatever in Genesis Peorage's equivalent in modern times of industrial music and industrialism and, and team human. And the, what, what we're talking about are not reactions against the technological environment, but they are hopefully ways of retrieving and restoring the, the necessary human faculties required to navigate this more highly mechanized world we're living in. I can say this specifically about Art Nouveau. They utilized all the technology. So they weren't moving into the woods and taking their clothes off and chewing on branches. They were just saying the thing that we can't lose in the process is our relationship with nature. So the idea was they, they used all of the new technology, but they were trying to direct everyone's attention to these sociological ideas. They could say that about us. I think they could. They could say that yeah. about, look, at here we are on Team Human using whatever. Right. They're using God knows what to make your movies and to make the restoration of, of a symbolist masterpiece. I mean, this is the way. I agree. I think that's why so, so many people in the art communities that I'm in are really anti-AI. And my argument has been, if your job is threatened by AI... You need to step your game up. Like there's something that you're like, again, if you're just writing copy or you're doing whatever, like what are the things that the machine can't do? And I'm not even saying that, like, I understand the idea of it being a billion times smarter eventually and being able to emulate everything, but it's like, it's still, it does restore things to the conversation about we are biological entities living on this planet interacting how do you use art to enhance, reinforce those connections and also our own intimacies? And if, if machines are part of that arsenal, I don't see it as a negative. I just think it's a responsibility issue. These days, we talk about art and technology, art and technology, as if art is at war with technology, but it's Adorno and those guys got it. No, it's like, can culture be an industry? Yes. Yeah. It kind of can't. It can interact with industry, but just as it can interact with technology, but in the end, it's it has its own spirit, its own flame, and that has to be kept kept alive and nourished. And that's sort of what I like yeah. about your work uh, that you're 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 moving through various points in history finding that 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 human passion fire thing underneath it. You know that that's 
That's and that's the thing we have to show the children, right? The yeah. kids. It's like yeah. there's that essence. And that to me, that's the whole team human thing. And it's sad. If you can name it, if you could put a word on it, if you can put a metric on it, if you can quantize it, then that's not it. Right? It's gotta be in that squishy, unnamed place, you know, that whether you want to call it God or soul or spirit or human or symbol. I think that's why I keep coming back to symbol because it's like, to me, the best decisions I've ever made in my life are when I tried to forget language. When I stopped trying to name something and I'm like, because when you name it or you're looking at a word, you're bringing so much baggage into it. And I'm like, what am Mm. I just looking at? I don't think it's intuition. I think it's just a processing that's faster than language, but something you'll get a huge kick out of. So the, the really complicated point that I'm in right now is so for the last three years with Caligula, I was completely living in art. It was just how do you make the most interesting movie that honors the performers, honors all the creative people that is eminently watchable and hopefully transformative. And I really do believe that we achieved that. And then the thing that happened is it premiered at Cannes, got really great write-ups. Now it's Mm. going into the world of marketing in terms of distributors are coming in and people are buying territories. Well, now it's in the world of the bean counters. And there's no precedent for a 40-something-year-old movie that was cut to the original script, which had been ignored in the first place. It's never happened Mm. before. So the conversations are just soul-sucking because the people that you're talking to aren't interested in if it's a transformative film. They don't even care if it's good. It's just how do I quantify it to be able to know where to put this to sell it and all of those yeah. things. And so it's, it's the most crystalline, like literally like crossing into the dark side of the moon and the temperature changes. After the premiere at Cannes, it's completely shifted now into, it could be a terrible movie, but if it had Jason Statham in it and it was made three months ago, everybody would know exactly what to do with it and they'd be excited about it. And so something that the people that are our sales agent in Europe have said is that they never experienced something like this where everybody they talked to, the entire convention, from the president of the film festival down to the coat check people, everybody has a Caligula story. They're all excited to see it. They all want to talk about it. But the people who write the checks are all saying, yeah, we don't really know what to do with it. And I just, Mm. so I'm just sharing that as like that example of how art and commerce really don't coexist. No. I mean, even with Team Human, it's interesting. The book buyers of the various main bookstore chains loved the book. And they were all like, but we don't know which shelf it goes on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've made enough books now that you can have your own shelf. Yeah, well, I would hope. Yeah, right. The Rushcraft <laughs> shelf. Uh, unfortunately, no. Um, but yeah, you know, so it ends up like in sociology or some strange place. But uh, people all buy everything on, on online anyway. So there's no shelf. There's yeah. just tags. I was just going to say. Uh, uh, I have a bunch of tags. I'm, I'm, I do better in a tag cloud than I do in a bookstore. Um, but uh, that's well, that, it. They're, they're, we're back. Back to symbols, right? Yeah. 
But that's also another, like, I'm a huge fan of of companies like Kickstarter. I really like, we do Mm. a lot with, like, so the big La Pater hardcover, there's no publisher on the planet that would have let me do whatever the dimensions are, like a 12 by 18 hardcover book with binding that looks like it's from a Harry Potter movie. Like, there's nobody that would have funded that. But I, that's another technology step. Things like we have crowdfunding that didn't exist before. So that you know, so there are ways that technology is a huge asset to the creative. Right. And that's I try to you know that's I just try to keep my head there, which is like how are these tools of value? I mean, every single thing that we're talking about could be another whole, <laughs> another two hour, another two hour avenue. But yeah, I know. So where are you now? I'm in Chicago. Yeah. It's funny. It's actually, it was a conversation I had with Grant Morrison that made me close the gallery. We were standing in the gallery and we were talking and he had been doing some things with virtual reality. Uh, I think, I don't know if it was earlier that day or that week where people were showing him some of this new technology. And he said, yeah, you're going to go to the supermarket and you're going to be wearing your glasses and you're going to turn to the right and the broccoli is going to be waving at you and talking to you, like all these things that are going to be the superimposed reality. And he said like how fait accompli it is that he's like, you and I are standing here talking. He's like, but it's not far off that I'm going to be in Scotland and you're going to be here. And you and I will have some kind of device that's going to allow us to talk just the way we are now. And I felt like I was selling whale oil in the 1880s. Like uh, electricity had arrived. And I'm the like <laughs> whale oil baron that's like, you know, selling lantern oil. And I realized that having an event where there's a line around the block to get in is great. But having a book is like the message in a bottle that goes right. out. And so, you know, we're not yet to the the place where you can have some of these virtual environments in that way. But I mean, that's just kind of a weird tangent. But yeah, that was. And so that's how I ended up in Chicago was we closed the gallery and I started working on I did the La Pater book kind of as my first creative thing. Then I started working on a movie and then this Caligula thing kind of fell into my lap and and. Re- rerouted me a little bit it was like would you do this and i thought i felt like it was it seemed obvious to me that if i didn't do it it wouldn't happen Mm. because they were so unsure what to do with it they were ready to just lock it up again and the curiosity in me was like i want to see what's on this film and and so then during the pandemic as with a lot of people i realized i didn't need to be anywhere for meetings and so maybe we're not in the same room with a headset, but everything I was doing was all Zoom. So uh, I moved to the Midwest to be closer to my nieces and nephews and for my son to grow up surrounded by his, uh, his cousins, mm-hmm. yet another human, human thing. And, you know, and then so for me to be in L.A. for something or New York, it's a very easy plane ride. It's a very simple right. thing. But, you know, I think... It wasn't like a big epiphany on my part. I feel like dozens and dozens of people that I know left LA across the last two years making the same kind of decision. Like people are moving to farms in Ohio and just hopping in on Zoom and things like that. 
Yeah. The, well, the attraction of some of the cities has certainly gone down. I mean, I still need people around, but I mean, there's people everywhere. You can move to any yeah. place, you know, as long as there's a little, maybe an NPR station or a university a library. Yeah. You know? I'm 30 <laughs> minutes from downtown Chicago. Right. There's enough people right yeah. there. Yeah. I don't, you know, it's, uh, you know, Los Angeles is a strange city. It is a unique yeah, but it's a strange and wonderful place to do occult research and yes. to find the weird, you know? Yeah, I'm glad. I was there for 10 years, and it's funny because I... So you and I met through Richard Metzger. Right. And I used to go out there, and I would visit him, but then he moved to Ohio right, right. before I moved to California, so our paths never crossed. But uh, yeah, his bedroom is where I saw my first Paul Laffley paintings. <laughs> which is very funny. But so I'm, I'm glad that I spent 10 years there because I did meet an extraordinary amount of, of wonderful people and especially, you know, lots of occult-minded folk and things like that. Yeah. You know, and I'm not an occultist as such, but they do hold the torch, I mean, of the kind of, of human thing that we're talking about. You know, sometimes if you can't yeah. find it anywhere, you can... Find an occultist, you know? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm way too straight for that. Like in terms of yeah. like, they look at me like I'm the normie or whatever. Yeah, I know. Me too. And it's funny because then in the regular world, we're looked at as the weirdos. Yeah. But And it's, an, it's funny yeah. too, because you mentioned Genesis Peorage. So I met Jen when we had the gallery in Chicago. And I didn't meet Jen until she was in her kind of earth mother phase. Right. And I'd never been attracted to the industrial music stuff and things like that. So I met her like in her weird Hawkwind phase. And so the funny thing about that is I wound up saying, you know, I really thought that you were interested in this cutting edge modernism and all of that. And so the thing is, she said, she was, she at that time, my connection to all of this art, my origin was through the symbolists. She's like, that's how mm. I got into it. And so she said, so I feel at this phase in my life, I've kind of pushed that thought into all of these modern areas, but I feel very comfortable returning to that. And I just wasn't expecting that. Like with what I knew of Jen as an artist, I wasn't expecting to hear, oh yeah, like William Blake. And yeah, you know what I mean? Like I'm thinking this is like, I don't know. I, I'm going to show that I don't know the material when I talk about like genital torture on stage or whatever. I just imagined, you know, the end fund terrible of British music, you know, so yeah, it was a very interesting yeah. thing to learn. And so then also now I've reexamined all of Jen's art through that lens. And now I really love it. When I, the, there was a coldness to it that I just didn't get. And same thing, this right. is really funny. And, and Richard's the one that told me this. Paul Laffoley called himself a symbolist. If you asked him to describe his style of art, he used the word symbolist. Right. But you look at it and it's so... And you wouldn't think that... No. I mean, I've got one back there and it's just, you know, uh, uh, letters and lines. Yeah. Well, I think what had happened is I said something in passing to Richard once, which was... You know, all these things that Paul is saying are really connected to symbolist art. And he said, oh, yeah, if you asked Paul, he would that's what he would say to describe himself. Right. And I was like, well, now it does make sense now that, you know, to yeah. look at it in that way. 
then I, I'm going to consider Team Human Symbolist as well. The reason I literally just in the last few days have been thinking about that is because I'm like, what is the thread? And in that way that Jen considered herself rooted in symbolism and Paul did, I'm thinking like, maybe that is the thread. Maybe it's that it doesn't matter. It's kind of like if you're interested in art that's based on Greek myths, it doesn't matter if it's a comic book or a painting or a movie, you're just kind of interested in these stories. Right. And I'm thinking maybe that's what it is, is that Jen doing, or Paul Laffley is a better example, doing that text, it's more about, well, what's the sentiment? And the sentiment mm-hmm. is about idea. And Paul just had to use words because that's that was his entry point. But here's the thing. So this is a, this is a weird thing. I'm really skeptical when it comes to all things metaphysical. Like I'm so, so deep into skepticism. When I sat in front of the Paul Laffley paintings, I definitely felt something. I definitely did. And it was weird for me because the part of me that's like, Richard, did you just dose me with something? Like, <laughs> right. like what's well, going on? Well, then you got to wonder, though, what is it? Is it that there's something <laughs> there or that the way the paintings are constructed like triggers that part of your brain That's what that I think LSD it, does? No, I think it's yeah. the latter. I don't think that it was like that there's really a gateway to a dimension, but I thought he did something that looks so non-emotional that is triggering a strong emotion in me just through me Mm. trying to understand the work. And I was like, that's brilliant. That's brilliant and powerful. I don't know that that's what he would say it is, though. I think he would say it's really the gateway. I think he would say it's the (laughs) (laughs) gateway. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I agree. But I I think that, well, then, then, you know, to play devil's advocate, you could argue, well, what is that thing that is on the other side? You know, is it a conscious entity in the way that we would relate to you and I being conscious entities? Right. Or is it a different perspective? And in that case, maybe both of us are wrong in our description. Right. Like maybe there's more to it than I'm in my pragmatic way seeing, but, you know, there's a practicality to it, kind of like that Asimov idea that any, you know, science is perceived as magic. Like maybe there's you know, something extra dimensional happening mentally. Yeah. But anything that creates that wiggle room, you know, that's what the great art does too. Anything that creates that moment of wiggle is kind of what makes you think. Paul Laffley is a great example of an artist that it's so sad to me that more people don't and, and will not get to know his work. There's a lot of artists that I look at from the 19th century that are really, really niche artists, that people who know the stuff maybe love this artist, but in a wider sense, there's not acceptance. And I think it comes back to the thing you were saying about the occultists, that Jason Louvre putting the Metatron on the cover of Generation Hex is an entry point for a lot of people to Paul Laffley Mm -hmm. You know, it's a very, I guess it's kind of like the occultists are almost like the rock bands of, you know, like <laughs> the mm. rock bands of conversations. Yeah. What's the cool thing? It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So before I let you go, I'm going to get a thousand emails from people saying, how do I get to see Caligula? I guess we don't know yet. That's going to play on movies. It'll be on some streaming thing eventually, right? Yes. It'll be in theaters in the fall. 
So there will be a limited run in theaters in yeah. the fall. And then following that, there will be a physical media release and it'll be on streaming and things like that. Gonna be interested to see what's uh what comes next for you. We have a the thing I was writing where like I I've been writing this week, which is the Baphomet thing. Is the book called Beautiful Macabre, which is all of this really weird kind of sexy, creepy art stuff. And then that'll be out this fall. And then the documentary called Let Them Hate Me, right. which is the Caligula documentary, yeah. which is actually, I don't know that there's any cultural significance to it that I, I can't apply symbolism to it. It's literally, it's like listening to an ACDC record. It's not it's just fun and it's cool and the yeah. stories are just so batshit insane that it would be criminal to not perpetuate them. Yeah. That was why I did my survival of the richest book. I mean, it's like in part, I've already had the message out. These guys are crazy. This is this mindset. And I did all the history and the mindset, but the real reason to get that book out is I've had these experiences that must be shared. These crazy stories of, you know, interacting with some of these people. I love that. That's one of the things I really loved about Richard Metzger's writing. Yeah. And I think that that was kind of my gate because he's the one that said, oh, you have to read Douglas Rushkoff. And I had bought Siberia in a library book sale years earlier. Oh, my God. And that's stories, too. That's got stories. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I totally have heard of him. That's and uh, that's and so then I met you at a book expo party. Oh. And the th reason that I always this is just kind of a funny personal thing. Mm. The reason you just always stayed on my radar is you were so nice to me. You uh -huh. were so nice to me. And then like, I just remember like, you know, just not everybody's that way. You're just you there's there was like a real sincere warmth to you. That just mm. felt like, and then when I started reading more of your work, I was like, well, that's interesting that these are in the same body because you could be a snob. <laughs> and I mean that because, yeah. you know, like your brain is so active. You could be one of those people that's like, I don't have a lot of time for people. And it's always been inspiring to me that you have balanced those really well. So that's, that's on a personal level oh. why I've just always you know, tried to stay in well, touch thanks. with you. It's been inspiring to me. I got to get meaner in my email because <laughs> otherwise I'll spend, I'll spend all day in there. You know, it's tricky because I really want to try to answer everybody's thing, but I'm getting now like three or four people a day send me the book they've written that they want to blurb or an agent. Oh, It's like, I don't know these agents. And, and if I blurb more than more than a book a day, I think my blurb value is going to go down. Right? It's like like remember that guy Rob Travers, Rob Travers from of Rolling, Rolling Stone. Stone. Yeah. yeah, it's like whenever there's a bad movie, you see some Rob Travers quote That's saying really it's a great funny. movie. I feel like him. He like replaced Gene Shalit as the. Oh my god! You know, I remember Gene Shalit. Quote maker. Nothing again. I mean, I don't know. It's funny don't know though. When, as soon as you said Rob Travers, I was like Rolling Stone. I've seen his name yeah. everywhere. Everywhere, because only he's the only one who would give good reviews. He probably gave a good review to uh, Caligula. I'll take a look back you know, in, but the, so uh, in the annals. This is an interesting question for you. So how do you reconcile something that I have a problem with is I try to be really present and direct with people. Like I try to tell people the truth. I try to do those things. But I've noticed that if somebody isn't and I don't want to say it like it's levels. We'll say it's they're parallels. If someone isn't on the track that you're on, I have found that very often people aren't hearing what I'm saying 
this is probably a Robert Anton Wilson kind of thing. They're not hearing the words I'm saying in a neutral sense. There's so much that applies to it that whether it's a painter saying, can you direct me this way or can you help me with this or any of that, that I think about, there's a lot of people that I used to meet that were very, they just wouldn't reply to people. Or they would give these very non-committal answers and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I feel myself starting to turn into that because I've had so many bad experiences where like I've tried to be present with someone and they weren't there. Have you had any experience with that? Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, I uh, was talking to this filmmaker guy. And it's funny because I had a friend here listening to me do it. And um, he's made a couple of movies you know, good whatever that he made money on independent feature films, you know, and he was getting interested. This was like a year ago. He's getting interested in crypto. And he thought, I want to do this thing where I'm going to use crypto and people then buy in and then it generates this and then I can make a movie with that and they have tokens. And it was one of those, you know, how to raise a, a, a cross between a Kickstarter and a DAO for him to make movies and all. And he had this whole, you know, this business plan thing. And I kept saying to him, Dude, are you a filmmaker or a business crypto person? You know, it's like his life energy was so much more directed toward figuring out the crypto model than it was toward what movie do you want to make? What do you actually, you know, and yeah. I was basically, I was, I was telling him, I don't know. I have nothing to tell you about he came to me because I'm supposed to be digital, you know, so I'm supposed to tell him whether his crypto thing is going to work or not. Yeah. And all I could tell him was, one, I don't think anything crypto is going to work, you know, in the end. It's just the novelty of crypto as opposed to just getting money from people anyway. It's a, no. But more fundamentally, I was it was that. And I do get that a lot where people are coming to me with a question and what I have to do. And I do it pretty well and succinctly now is tell them. I can't respond to the frame that you're using is the problem here for me. You yeah, know, that's and you could talk to some crypto person about if you want to talk about that frame, but I think you're putting the wrong frame around. You've had two successful movies that one of which I actually saw and people know you shouldn't be worrying about crypto models right now. But did he respond aggressively? Or, or favorably? Not aggressively. I think I gave him pause, but probably not enough pause. But if you're open to it, I remember I, I wanted to start a theater company in the, God, it was early 80s, you know, when I was still like just in college or just done with college. And I'd gone to the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center, where there's this place called the National Theater Institute, where these great teachers, and we had this directing teacher and me and Amy, who wanted to start our company, we were going to try to raise money to buy a barn in New Hampshire to make into our theater. And Max Schism was his name was the th director to teacher there. And he's like, well, he was from Oklahoma. And he'd go, what do you want to do? You want to do theater or you want to do real estate? And he was basically telling us, why are you focusing on getting a place to turn into a theater thing? Just do a play. If you want to do theater, do theater. It doesn't matter where you are. You don't need a thing. And those kind of reframing responses are what these people need from us. That makes you know? sense. Yeah. 
more than anything. So I kind of took that lesson from him and I and I, I do it honestly. But you're right. Most people who are coming for an hour of your time really just want to be told, and Timothy Leary was good at this, that's the best idea I've ever heard. Go for it, man. Yeah. Go for it. And if I get an email or an inquiry and I can tell it's a person that just wants to be encouraged, I'll just give them the honey. Go for it. Go for it. And then they're like, oh, can I use that? Can I use that quote on the on the <laughs> PowerPoint for the pitch of the project? It's like, no. <laughs> I definitely, I've, I've just noticed it in the last year that I've started to to do that. Yeah, you're on the right path. Keep doing what you're doing. Like, kind of things, which right. to me feels very, you know. I usually try to give a little steer and then say, you know, where it hits most deeply for me is when you talk about this part. I would lean into yeah. that. Yeah, that's, you know? a, that's a good. It was, it's the blogger effect. I used to talk about this in the early 90s when, when blogger, well, mid 90s, I guess, when, when blogger first came around, I was like, just because you could type doesn't mean you should write, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, these, these machines made it a lot easier to type words, but oh my God. Uh, there's still no more. No, there is no greater number of, of talented writers now than as ever. Right. So <laughs> that's a whole other thing. I'm so happy. I got to see you and speak with you in person. Yeah. And thank you for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Tom Negavan. You can find out more about his work at CenturyGuild.net. Our opening song is Foreman's Dog by Fugazi. And the closing theme playing right now is Hyphenated Man by Mike Watt. We also played some audio samples from our good friend, Are You Serious? Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. <laughs>